In James chapter 1, verse 27. James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, I love and adore You and I'm thankful, Father, for the opportunity to come and to to preach this tonight, Father God. And I pray that I preach it accurately, Father God. I pray, God, Lord, that I have prepared something, Father God, that's um, that first afflicted, Father God, and conflicted my own heart, Father. And that I pray, Father, that it does exactly that for Your people. Father God, I am praying that this builds upon other things that You called upon me to say, Father. But more than anything else, Father God, I pray, Lord, that it begins, it stirs something new in us, Father. Um, I know I need to, to examine my own life and, and check myself all the time, Father God. And I'm praying that we become that kind of church where each of us, Father God, is always casting a critical eye at their own life, Father. That each of us is their own worst critic, Father. That none of us wants to rationalize away anything, Father God, that would be wrong or improper, Father God, or cruel. That we would all be those, Father God, who are constantly looking for an opportunity to grow in our faith and to improve our walk, Father. Bless us now, Father God, that we take this seriously. And bless me, Father God, that I can preach it, Father God, as you intended, with passion and power and fire, Father God. I love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Okay, I began with a quote as I do all, a lot. Um, may not have ever read any of his, read his book or anything like that. Um, I was introduced to J.D. Vance through a TED Talk that I do with my kids. It's one of those TED Talks that every single high school kid needs to hear about, uh, needs to hear. Um, Vance grew up in south, uh, southwestern Ohio in coal country. So he is more, this is pejorative, but well, I guess we can use it. Um, because we're rednecks, um, it's more. He's a hillbilly, cold country. Okay, so we grew up. Grew up the children of uh, a child of alcoholics, with every disadvantage in the world. J.D. Vance uh, graduates high school. To be honest with you, when many people in his, not only his family but his community, did not finishes high school, joins the Marine Corps. Marine Corps gives him the structure and the discipline that his upbringing never had. It also gives him, I'm sure, pretty certain, to be honest with you, the GI Bill. So he comes back out of the Marine Corps with money for college, goes to Ohio State, graduates, then discovers that when you're poor and from cold country, that um, it's cheaper to go to really, really good schools than it is to go to your state college. And I think he winds up going to Yale and becomes a lawyer from Yale. Why? Because when you're really, really poor, those places have literally billions of dollars in, in gifted money from all of their many super wealthy benefactors that are designed for one thing, that is to take poor kids and elevate them. All right? His TED Talk is pretty much about that, which is just don't, don't give up on yourself because you're poor. He's poor and white or poor and black or poor and Hispanic or poor and whatever. Because you're poor, if you apply yourself, poverty can be your greatest advantage and not your greatest weakness. Most people just don't have the guidance to apply. The Marine Corps gave it to a guy who already had the smarts. He just needed the self-discipline to do it. Uh, lots of stories you can hear about that. Part of J.D. Vance's story, though, is a very evangelical Christian faith that he grew up in under the tutelage of his grandmother. He wrote this. He said, The evangelical Christian faith I'd grown up with sustained me. Now, I keyed on that 
not at the incept of this, but about halfway through when I needed an idea to help me understand it better. And that was the fact that our faith can and does rightfully sustain us. Through the most difficult of times, our faith helps us get through, doesn't it? We need it. Without it, we'd crumble. We'd crumble. So he said his faith sustained him. It's a young man speaking, much younger than I am. But it doesn't mean he doesn't need his faith. Faith isn't just for senior adults, right? It's for everybody. Because anybody can have bad times. It demanded that I refuse the drugs and alcohol on offer in our southwestern Ohio town. Now, also reading that, I said to myself, boy, that sounds like kids and mice, doesn't it? Because if you want to be a drunk or a drug addict, you are in prime territory, aren't you? Because for every one person who resists, you can find very easily ten people who do not resist anything. Right? If you want me to introduce you, I'll take you down a whole bunch. I realized, found, realized that was a weird thing about myself. Was that when I, went, when I went riding around with some of my friends later on that weren't like drug addicts and things like this, I knew where trailers were. They had no clue those people even lived there. And they lived here their whole lives. And I knew. Well, there's one person, hint, hint, Miss Glenda, who introduced me to all those people who knew where all of them lived and could tell you the whole story of every single one of them. All right? That there are a lot of people that you may have lived here your whole life and you may not even hardly know who they are. Those are all the wrong people sometimes. And to be blunt with you, if you're looking to mess up, you're going to find them in my eyes. Without a sustaining faith, you're never going to be able to resist all the temptations and the wiles of the devil. You're just not going to be able to without that sustaining faith. Faith, he had it. That I treat my friends and family kindly. He grew up in a family where one parent tried to kill the other parent and went to jail for it. So every lesson he had was lash out at people, be angry, get even. His Christian faith taught him something, Brother Mike, radically different. Just using the guy as an example, okay? That I work hard in school. Now look, some of the brightest and best students you're ever going to meet in your life, you're going to meet right across the street over there. And there are also some kids over there that don't even care if they get a high school diploma, aren't there? Plenty of kids over there. Now, Brother Joe, how many kids you met over the years that only graduated because they wanted to play football? If there had never been any football, they, didn't, they wouldn't have gone past the eighth grade. There, as much as we can have kids over there that just want to, be, that want to go to Harvard and Yale... You have a whole bunch of kids that don't give a rip if they ever finish high school. Sounds like the same place to me. And that he got something from his faith that said, you're to do everything you do to the honor and glory of God, even especially if it's something you don't want to do, like study in school. That you can't be passionate about this over here and be a lazy person about this because one reflects on the other. It doesn't mean everybody's valedictorian. It means everybody puts everything into it that they've got to put into it. Because everything we do, we do the honor and glory of God. Most of all, when times are toughest, it gave me reason to hope. Now, the one thing that has always surprised me, even though I ought to be used to it by now, is how many kids I will run into on a daily basis in a school in South Mississippi that are on the ragged edge and ready to give up. And when I mean give up, you think you know what giving up is. You really do not know the depths of giving up. You've met some real 
quitters in your life. Give up on everything. Give up on society as a whole at 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 years of age. That faith, now according to J.D., and I'm going to try to show you, faith can be the antidote to that. Faith can interrupt a process that's, to be honest with you, a process that's, or a way, a path that's been laid by grandmother and grandfather. And mom and daddy never questioned it. And now here you are, the third generation. And everybody you know quits school in the eighth grade and everybody you know gets drunk all the time and everybody you know does everything bad. And that faith can interrupt a process that looks like a steamroller rolling over everything good in your life. looks like an out-of-control locomotive. And faith can interrupt that process. That's how powerful it is. It's not just about sending people to heaven. That is fantastic that we get to see heaven. But what is, what is almost as good is that we can have hope for our lives right now. They can change lives right now. The Christian faith that saves us also sustains us, providing hope for the brokenhearted and the twisted by sin. Without a lively and a reasonable faith, we are exiles and refugees in a land hostile to our survival. And look, I mean, I know these are, can seem like maybe flowery words. They're not really meant to be. They're really, after looking at them today, they're really dear to me. A lively faith. Brother Rudy, a faith that is the first thing I tell people about and not the last thing. The first thing that is my definition as a person is my faith in Christ Jesus. But it's also reasonable. It's both living and deeply reasonable in that it makes sense. My faith in God makes sense and I can explain it to others. This is why I feel the way I do. It's not some otherworldly experience, even though at the core is the most supernatural thing in the world, being born again. Even though that is true, it's not ethereal. It's not just angelic. It makes sense. I can share it with people. I want to share it with people. Pansy, I want to tell people this is exactly what God did for me and this is how He did it. This is what the cross means to me. Biblically. Substantive belief in Christ, excuse me, belief in Christ Jesus, is that which informs our minds and guards our hearts against sin. The true pursuit of the Christian faith. That heart that's guarded. See, one of the, and I, maybe I dwell on it too much. I don't think there's any way. The thing that always, always gets me is when I sit down and, and, and in the dark of the night, Miss Dolores, on those nights when worry or anxiety or fear or whatever has stolen my sleep, and I go back over my life and I think of how dreadful I was, how truly terrible I was, and how I do not deserve one drop of the blood of Jesus, not one drop. How I do not deserve His favor. I do not deserve His love. I do not deserve a place in heaven. I am made for hell. But yet He saved me. But yet He saved me. 
I think of, of the ravaging on my life of sin. And then all of a sudden I think to myself, my God, you've got to guard me. Because my, my desires within my flesh are all sinful and all aberrant to God. They're all against His plan. And if God, you don't guard me, I'll fail. And fail miserably. No, one of those things, I don't think that our individual faith all the time does. And I don't mean that your faith is bad. I mean sometimes our faith is incomplete and immature. And what I mean is this, is I think sometimes our faith does not lead us to be fearful when it comes to sin. I don't think it's young people. I think it's older people. Me. They get more comfortable with making excuses for sin. That's just the way I am. We say that a lot, don't we? I'm just that way. Well, your, your father's just that way. How many times have you heard that? What way? The holy way or the evil way? We can't make excuses for sin. We can't rationalize away what Jesus died to save us from. In the very same way we can't look out upon this wicked world and celebrate those things and those lifestyles that to be quite blunt with you, Jesus died to save men and women from. We can't look at our own personal sin and just act like it's no big deal when nails were driven to pay for it. Because tell you what, if nails are driven to pay for it, it's always a big deal, right? From the first of my days to the last of my days, from my very first breath to my very last breath, sin is always a big deal. And it always will be a big deal. Look, now, the outline that James provides for us, and this is in our focal passage, it's not all-encompassing, it's not an all-encompassing list, but just kind of a portion of what we're trying to see as far as what it means to have that really authentic, reliable practice of the faith. And I mean, it's not just that I'm saved, but I'm living saved, and I'm thinking saved, and I'm studying saved, and I'm witnessing saved, and I'm spending saved, that everything about me now looks as if it is under the authority of God. That's authenticity. When mind, heart, actions, everything that is me looks like it's under the authority of God. So there's just a portion of it, but we're going to get there, I believe, as we finish this. It's a portion of an, of an overall teaching on active and powerful faith. Now, the, the two things that this verse focuses on are, one, focusing our attention on the needs of others. My faith never gets to be about my wants and needs and desires. Now, listen to me. Just like you, I am incredibly good at making it about me. What kind of music should we sing? The kind I like. How should we spend our money? The way I think we should. What time should we meet? When I think it's convenient for me. I'm confessing. I know I'm, I know I'm self-centered. I know I am. And I know I war against it every day. What you shouldn't do is sit in here and think you're one less self-centered than I am. Do not lie to yourself because you're just as self-centered. Everybody's like that. That's why the faith has nothing to do with me. Miss Karen, the faith's got nothing to do with how Tony and Karen would sit down and decide things should be. It's not. It's always about Jesus. And He always places that focus on everybody else but us. That's why the reward is taking the one who's first, who's willing to make himself last. The great reward is being willing to put everybody else in front of me. That once again, something people don't do. And let's just be honest... We don't particularly do it any better at any season of life. 
In fact, if we don't watch out, we'll spend the last season of our lives more selfish than we were the first season. If we don't watch out. Now what I love about the faith is that very statement right there. Is that I've always got to work at it. I've always got to strive. I've always got to look at myself critically. Because if I don't, I will wind up in a mess. I will take my faith and make it shipwreck. And then you go back and look at the scriptures and think about how many men who should have known better did exactly that. How many men? Solomon, Eli, Samuel, man after man after man after man tries to ruin their faith in the end. And they should have known better. They should have been able to enjoy the fruits of their faith and what they do, they made it a shipwreck. Because if we don't work at our faith every single day, this is what happens. Every single day. Second part. The pursuit of Christ through holy and moral living. And I, look, I've gone on and on and on about that for probably 18 months now, to be honest with you. At least that long. The idea is this. Is that my direct pursuit of God is by changing the way I live and the way I think and the way I, I speak. Those ways. By conforming my life to a moral code that is as deep and as rich as the entire Scriptures. God wants to enslave me, Brother Roger, to Himself and to redirect and recreate my life in His image, not a sanitized version of my image. He doesn't want me just leaving out a couple of sinful things. He wants me remade, rebranded, is the right word, in His image. To look like His child. The pursuit of Christ through holy and moral living. Now King David writes this about this very issue in Psalm 34 verse 14. He says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, the emphasis is on fellowship between God and man based on man's obedience and desire for holiness. How do I communicate with God? I do it through prayer, there's no doubt about that. But my real communication with God has as its foundation my willingness to hear and be obedient. In fact, I'll be quite blunt, blunt with you. I'm not sure there is any communication with God if I am unwilling to be obedient to Him. I'm not sure God is going to direct my life if I am unwilling to follow God in those directions. Why would He? If you had an employee that would not do as they were told, you would fire them, right? And if you couldn't fire them, if you didn't have the authority to fire them, at the very least you'd stop giving them orders, wouldn't you? You'd simply stop wasting your breath. Why would God not do that? Why would He continue to try to direct the life of a person other than chastisement, other than, I mean, bringing pain to the person's life to redirect them? Why in the world would He hear me cry? if I never listen to what he says. So there's that, that fellowship between God and man based on man's obedience, desire for holiness, and the relationship between believers and the world via just, holy, and sacrificial action. That what do we do? We act in holy ways. We act in just ways. We act in sacrificial ways. My life changes the work product of Tony becomes more like Jesus and less like Tony. God did not die to make Tony better. God died to kill Tony 
so that Tony could be reborn in the image of God. Because Tony's bad to his core. Tony's ruined to his very core. Tony's hopeless. Why would... What, what, how could you clean this up enough? You simply can't. Simply can't. So, other biblical writers kind of looked at this topic. I want to share with you just a few minutes. Paul writes in Romans 14, 19. He says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The contribution of this verse to the overall understanding is that Christians pursue godly matters. I've said for about 18 months now, I've been using that terminology in association with holiness. I've been saying we pursue God through holiness. Now, I was pondering today in my spare moments at school how I was going to share with you pursuit. And the only way I can think of it is this. Now, I'm going to share with you the definition of the Greek word here, here in a, a point or two later. But the only way I can really think of it say is this. Um, how do we come together in couples? Somebody pursues somebody, don't they? We court. We woo. Don't we? We talk sweet. That rough-handed man that is unable to ever say anything nice about anything finds a way to talk sweet to his potential wife, doesn't he? That totally outspoken and wild as a bug woman who never held any opinion in her mouth for more than five seconds in her life will hold back just a little bit, won't she? if she thinks she's found the right one. We understand pursuit from both sides. We understand pursuit. The idea is this, is that when you're pursuing the one you, you love, the one your heart goes out to, when you're pursuing that one, what do you do? You throw caution to the wind, don't you? Wow, look, she's the one for me, I'm going to marry her, but I won't do that to marry her. I won't dress up. I won't cut my beard. When she's got your heart, Mike, you shave your beard, won't you? When she's got your heart. Unless, of course, she likes it and then you'll grow it. One or the other. One or the other. You will do the silliest, goofiest, little, most humiliating things when somebody has your heart, won't they? Because you're pursuing them. It's not. It's, it's it's so much different, and so much. It's ju- but it's just as beautiful as the as the as the love you'll have for your children, isn't it? The difference is when you love your children, you don't feel that moment in which you fell in love. You were in love with them when they were potential. You were in love with them when they were literally the clump of cells. You were madly in love with them and would die for them at that point. Mother and father, madly in love. The difference here is you're trying to win somebody's heart. And what will you do to win a heart? Whatever it takes, right? That's pursuit. That's pursuit. 
I've said this before, and it may sound weird to your ears, I don't mean for it to be that way, but I can think of no other way thematically of summing up what God wants from us or the fact that He loves us automatically and without reservation as a father loves a child, and He wants us to love Him as one lover loves another. By choice. To give their hearts. To give everything. He promises the world. And He wants us to promise to give a whole life. That's pursuit. That's pursuit. The willingness to turn your back on anything that does not win the prize. And that's what He, that's what he demands from us. The contribution to this verse is the overall understanding is that Christians pursue godly manners, matters. We utilize our ambition and our drive in order to, to seek out those attitudes and experiences which promote peace and the building up of each and every member of the church. So, so what happens here is, and I, I don't use those words, those, those words, I don't use them cautiously, I don't need to. I understand what I'm saying. God wants God and godly matters and obedience to be our ambition. Not to go to college and be a lawyer and, and, or be a doctor. Do all these things that, to be quite blunt with you, they can be for God and they can absolutely not be for God, right? They can be for holy matters that bring honor and glory to Him and they can just be to feather our own nest. There's no doubt about that. And I've been saying that from this pulpit for a very, very long time. I've been begging the kids that come through here to let God have total possession of every decision that you make from that point forward. Let God pick your college. Don't do it because you want to go there. Don't do it because you think you can. Don't do it because you're big enough. Let God decide. Let God take possession of it all. A godly pursuit means God takes possession of it all and He uses it all for His glory. But the fact of the matter is, we have so, we have, we so engaged the self-centered nature of our ambition that you have Christian kids growing up wanting to be things that, that secular people want to be. Want to do things that they could do without Christ. I'm here to tell you, if you can become that without Jesus helping you at all, why in the world would you need Jesus in your life? He's not about going to heaven. He's about living for Him now, heaven being a reward. He's not fire insurance. But the fact of the matter is, He wants to take control of our ambition. He wants my ambition for the rest of my days. If they are few or if they are numerous, He wants my ambition to be God's ambition. What does God want me to do with my time? Where does God want to take me? Not, oh, I can't wait till I retire. What's God going to do with it? God may want me to work ten more years. What's God going to do with me? Not my ambitions, but His. He wants to take control of our ambition, our drive, so we can seek out attitudes and experiences which promote peace and the building up of each and every member of the church. That in the end, we focus our hearts and our minds toward the Lord and the beneficiaries are the body. We build each other up. I build Joseph. Joseph builds me up. My ambition is for Joseph. My ambition is to see Joseph soar in the Word. Soar in the Lord. That's my ambition. That's my drive. It becomes about the body of believers. Our duty is to bolster each other into the family 
and the kingdom of God, to absolutely build each other up in the family, to see people become something fantastic in the body of believers. Not out there. Not out there. That's corrupt. And that's evil, but here. Then what else? Quickly. Peter explains in 1 Peter 3, 10-11, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, Peter acknowledges that Christians should have an innate desire to love their lives and have good days. And I think I depart from that sometimes. I think I take verses like hating my life in this world to mean that we are hangdog all the time and that I'm literally going to spend my life just staring at the eastern sky. Staring. Because my life is so miserable that I want out of it as quickly as possible. Now we're not to love it in such a way that we are so desperate that we're Hezekiah who God calls for and he pleads with God for years more. You remember how that turned out? Why did Hezekiah want, a, want to live longer? He didn't have an heir, right? He had nobody to leave his, the, the kingdom to. He had no son to succeed him. Yeah, God let him live 15 more years. You know who his son was? Manasseh, the most wicked king who had ever reigned. Reigned 55 years, sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. What did Hezekiah need to do? He needed to die. He did. He didn't need to be so distrusting of God and so desperate that he would trade the future of the kingdom for a few more years. But that's what he did. That's exactly what Hezekiah did. Exactly what he did. So look, are we to love our lives? Absolutely, but we love them in the Lord. Now look, let me explain that to you right now. Peter acknowledges that Christians have an innate desire to love their lives and have good days. Not days fraught with worry and anxiety over the matters of life. I think that's the difference. I think the difference is that more often than not, we think there's a third path. And the third path is, I'm going to live a long time, but I'm going to worry about everything. The hardest thing in the world to do is to teach South Mississippi Baptists not to worry about every single thing in the world. Especially every nickel. Now, we're old enough now that we're not Depression-era Baptists. The problem was we were raised by a bunch of people who grew up in the Depression. Right? That's the problem. Whose daddies went to work for a quarter a day. Saw the ravages of it. People thought Jesus was imminent because it was so bad. But it did something to our psyche down here so that we will literally worry over every nickel our whole lives. Now there's a difference, Ms. Dolores, with being respectful and careful and worry. Alright? Respectful and careful means we are conservative with it, but at the same time we are obedient with it, right? Because if God calls on you to sell it all and give it away, what do you do? You sell it all and give it away. He said that to the rich young ruler, and what did he do? He snipped out somebody that loved money more than they were supposed to, right? Who walked away unsatisfied, and he was confronted with the most satisfying single person who's ever existed, Jesus Christ. 
He walked away unsatisfied because he loved his money more than Jesus and he was always going to. Because see, worry and anxiety over things like money are on the flip side of loving it. Of caring for it too much. So we've got to have a healthy perspective about those things. There's no doubt. Now, but we can't just sit around torn up with anxiety. In order to do this, believers must... Now listen, we must not speak evil things. That's what he says. Look, he says, And um, uh, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. How do we do this? How do we pursue God in this way? We do not... Um, we don't speak evil things and we're not engaged in lying and deceitful behavior. Now, here's the problem with that. And I, I know I'm, I'm belaboring every point. I don't necessarily mean to do that, but I need to explain a little bit. When you were young, why did you lie? What'd you say? Stay out of trouble. And, and right akin to that is you lied because you were afraid. I'm cutting you off. Afraid. You lied out of fear. Virtually everybody I've ever met in my life that told a lie. Told a lie for one reason, one reason only. Because they were afraid. And when you make human beings afraid, whether it's job afraid, or marriage afraid, or money afraid, or law afraid, or whatever, the first thing to come out of their mouth is what? A lie. Because they're scared. There's something... I know we want to say we're truthful, and in so many ways we are. So many of us... I'm one of those has had to go to people and admit the most bitter and horrible things. I'm one of those. I've been there. I've, I've done that when I realized God wasn't going to let me go easy and lie. And I was going to have to go and stand before them and tell the truth. But hardwired into us, when we're afraid, is the desire to do what? To bend the truth. To be a liar. Don't act like we don't. Don't, don't. don't Just don't look at me like that. Because you know. And let's just be honest. I think if we started asking around, if we really had to look back, Miss Jane, over our lives with a microscope, we'd think, my goodness, I don't lie like I did when I was five, but I'll still catch myself telling things that are not true. Now, I say I'm saving feelings or making it easier or whatever. But I still catch myself saying things that are not true. There's one right there that ought to hit us, everyone in the chest. Am I really as truthful as I think I am? Am I really as truthful? We're to turn our backs on evil and do what is good and right as the Scripture teaches us. One of the hardest things in the world is say, look, I know this is evil, I'm just going to turn my back on it. Again, we are to set our pursuits toward peace and all that we can control. Now, finally, the last thing. The writer of Hebrews, and we'll finish this next time, in Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The same word for pursue used by Paul is used by the writer in this verse, the, the Greek word dioko, which means to pursue something with all haste. Now, I added that definition for that one aspect of it. Miss uh, Beverly, if we're going to pursue something, we don't wait. Our pursuit of God is never speculative. It's always real. In the same way that throughout our lives, we have gone after things that we really wanted, 
a job or a person or a position on a team or whatever we desired. We went for it as hard chargers because we wanted that thing. Maybe in a selfish way, we are to go for God in that way. The idea of haste. Stephen, we just don't wait forever. We'll think, well, you know what, maybe I'm in my 30s, maybe in my 40s. I'll do that. You know when's the time to start pursuing the Lord? Now. Now. Do not assume you'll have the health or the brain to do it tomorrow. Pretty good point, isn't it? Do not assume that all of us will have our good senses as long as we think we're going to have them. I never in a million years thought my dad would have Alzheimer's. There's a lot of things. Diabetes, everything in the world else, heart attack. I never saw Alzheimer's coming. Never. And when it was here, it was just there. Any hopes for my father to do things in his 70s to bring honor and glory to God? Blown away. Gone. Don't exist. Never know where the enemy is. The enemy could be in your brain right now. Never have a clue. So don't count on being able tomorrow get my act together. I can't count on being able tomorrow to decide, well, today is going to be my day. That idea of dioko, of haste, is the idea that it means so much to me that I'm going to start right now doing it. I'm not going to wait. Our pursuit, the thing that we are the most desperate for, is peace with, the God, with God through holiness. The church and as much as the truth will afford the world. Peace. Peace. We are pursuers of peace. So much of our culture today, the church looks like we're trying to pick a fight with everybody. We'll just slap people in the face with the truth. And it's just nauseating to God because everything He told us was pursue peace. Chase peace. What do we do? We throw it in people's faces. It's pure pride. Unadulterated pride. It's the worst, most horrible kind of Phariseeism. We'll lift up one aspect of the Scriptures and ignore everything else. Declaring the world korban. I tithe the dent in the mill, uh, the, the mint and the dill. It doesn't matter what else I do. Jesus would say, you idiots, you're missing the point. You can see that tree, but you can't see the forest. Peace is the defining characteristic of the Christian life, and it must reimagine our fellowships, our relationships, and our personalities. Peace with God, humans, and ourselves. That pursuit of peace doesn't leave me out. Because if there's anybody I'm at most at war with, it's Tony. Yeah, you think you don't like me. You don't know what I think about me. We've all been in that situation, haven't we? Where we dawn on us that people do not like us and we realize that we agreed with them. If there's anything believers need, it's peace with themselves too. Peace with God and peace with others feels kind of hollow when you're torn up and at war inside your own head. 
So there's peace here for us. The consequences of failing in the pursuit of our lives is outlined in those subsequent verses. We do not want to fail in the pursuit that defines us. In verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Our desires are that no one in our presence would fail to have the grace of God bestowed upon him or her. That the gospel is so thick and Miss Glenda, the demonstration of the gospel in our lives, so authentic and so reliable that nobody comes in this room and just walks away untouched by the grace of God. It is the greatest shame on a church that people would come through our lives and never find the cross. Our jobs show the cross to everybody. Not just out there, but beginning here and now. That no bitter root of an evil attitude or grudge would cause a division and defile the body of Christ. That's another one of those things that I think makes South Mississippi such a great place to preach like this. Is that there's so... It just Hatfields and McCoys, folks. On a minor, on a minute scale. So many people. I remember coming here and saying, asking about this person, this person, this person, and I found out this one wouldn't come because they were mad, this one wouldn't come because they were married to this one, and then they got divorced, and now they both can't come, and all this kind of stuff. And there's so many grudges and so many problems and so many opportunities, Joe, for that bitter, evil root to take hold. Do you know what I mean? That grudge that burns in you. You can't even remember why you're mad. You just know you are. And as I pointed out to you before, just when you start to get over it, what do you do? Talk yourself into being mad again. Spiritually, you want it to do, your spirit wants to let it die, but your brain wants to rehash it. We have to root out those things. That sexual immorality would not even be named among us. Now, the Bible's so real. It's so real. And what the Bible knows is this, is that nothing will tear up families and tear up churches like sexuality that is outside of the dominion of God. Sinful sexuality. And that everybody in church has to get a constant reminder of it. Constant reminder. That we have to guard our hearts in terms of the physical. And that we don't have any, we have any choice to do it because if we don't, we are just literally leading ourselves down that primrose path. The path of destruction. And that no one would become so hardened that they are unable to truly and biblically repent. Now there's the, there's the final catch as we, as we pause in the midst of this. Is that what we really pray against is this. Is that we, you're going to run into people. And I, I'm so respectful when I speak of this. You're going to run into people if we're not extremely careful that we've brought in the midst and we've prayed over, but we haven't set the proper example and that root of bitterness has taken hold and they just simply cannot and will not repent. They know better than God. It's so hard when a man or a woman just becomes a fool, just a fool, to convince them otherwise. 
Let's pray. Father God, I adore you and I thank you, Father God. Uh, God, I thank you for blessing me to make get to the middle of this, Father God. And I pray, God, that I've not left anything out that you meant for me to talk about, but that I will be able to pick up next time, Father God, and really complete this thought that you've given me. I pray, Father God, for the for the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the life of, of every single person in this room, Father God, that we would hear and we would understand, Father God, and we would then be able to apply this, God, to our lives. God, there's so much... God, in, in, in having a real and authentic faith that has to be confronted. Because there's so much, God, that I want to take along with me that just simply, God, does not reflect you. So I pray now, God, that, I, we, that we will all take this seriously, that we will all be convicted, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that now our people, Father, will come together and just, God, we will want, Father, to grow and to surrender to you. Lord, we thank you most of all, Lord, for the gift of Christ Jesus. In His precious blood, Father God, we are saved. In the gift of Jesus, God, we now pray. Amen.